you know, I hate to break this to all our younger colleagues who are listening, but examination is still useful. When the examination trumps the study, examination wins. Anytime you're writing down a psychiatric diagnosis, the pen ought to smack you in the top of your head. A touch of fall has come to Michigan, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, this will be the October 2016 issue of Risk Management Monthly. We know you're busy this month because you've got the national ASAP meeting in Las Vegas coming up in the middle of the month. Rick, you're going to be there uh, holding a booth for the first couple, uh, first time in years, right? That is right. The whole crew is going to be there. My brother Mark, my two kids, uh, we're going to be having a, a double booth. Now, this is we're trying to make up for lost time, so we got a double booth coming up there. And we would like everybody who's a subscriber, both of you, to stop by the booth and say hello. We also have a a bit of um, history being made this past week when people had to recertify. They took the uh, recert exam. Uh, and beat their chest and said, oh, God, oh, God. But they did it, and uh, they will be certified for another 10 years. Uh, that happened this week for uh, ABEM. And w- something else that's happening this week is you are going to Europe tomorrow, someplace over there, to receive some kind of an award, I believe. Yeah. Well, they've run out of people in Europe. Obviously. You know, you're, it's smaller. Uh, So they've decided to make me an honorary member of the European Society of Emergency Medicine, and I'm going to give some talks. And they're even throwing a ball at an 18th century palace. Uh, They're going to have uh, waltzes upstairs and rock and roll downstairs. So it should be uh, quite the event. Uh, My wife is willing to go with me to Vienna, of course. And since she's going, we're flying first class. Now, if I'd been going by myself, I would have not only been sitting in coach, but I'm sure she would have found a special deal where if I served drinks, we could get it even cheaper. But uh, so that's where I'm going, Rick. Well, I think it's very generous of your children to uh, loosen up on some of their inheritance and send you and your wife first class. Very nice of them both, or all yes. three of them. Very nice yes, of them. Yes, yes. I, I, I have not written to thank my children for uh, the first class tickets. But thank you for reminding me, Rick. I'm, sh- I'm sure we're going to... Uh, Every dollar you spend now is, you know, is, you're not spending dollars. They're spending dollars. It's their <laughs> money that you're spending. All right, let's get to some stuff here. All right, listen, uh, we got some Amtala stuff again. Bob Bitterman, thank you, thank you, thank you for being so generous uh, with us on the uh, answering of these questions because when it comes to Amtala, we don't want to say anything wrong because there's too much at stake. And although, Gregory, you know everything just about, we have to concede that Amtala is uh, kind of a moving target where we feel more comfortable asking uh, MDJD Bob Bitterman. Yes, this for people who don't know it, uh, Bob, uh, this is his been his forte for the last twenty years. He keeps up with it. He follows all the cases. So uh, we're happy to defer to Bob on these issues. And let me also say, Bob and I have known each other since the day he got out of residency, and uh, he has been just a delight to work with. So, Bob. Again, our thanks for putting up with both Rick and I as we uh, as we do our best to wear out our welcome with him. Well, you know, actually, uh, Bob does have a consulting business, and uh, 
works with hospitals and individuals, health systems, the whole kit and caboodle on EMTALA slash HIPAA, you name it kind of things. So, And he is still actively involved in that process. So uh, let's get started. I've got a question here from a, a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. <laughs> good, good idea. <laughs> Generally a good idea. Exactly right. So I'm going to, this is relatively long. I'm going to, I'm going to summarize. I think there's some good questions here. The first question centers around the fact that the hospitalists at a small rural hospital where he works are saying that they are at capacity and won't take any more admissions. It's something like it's a small community hospital. The number of beds they have is like, you know, 90 years, a hundred something, but they only can, they only have a capacity, they think in the fifties. And um, our listener wants to know how, what CMS has to say about this. He's concerned that the additional transfers may be an Imtalabes violation and certainly will ex- expose these patients to medical risk just be backed by being out on an ambulance in the middle of nowhere someplace. Let me let me just summarize where we are with this, Rick. We got a guy sitting in the emergency department, a uh, patient who's sick, something's wrong. Basically, the emergency doc is being told, no, we can't take him in because we're at capacity. Right. Now, it, what it sounds like is this is the whim of the hospitalist who's on call that day. And, uh, and I, I can see some potential dangers here. But why don't we go right and see what Bob has to say about this? Bob says capacity is a defined term in the CMS regulations, and he cites the regulation. In case you want to know, it's 42 CFR 489.24, parentheses, B. I, I, I thought it was A, but apparently it's B. <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> and this regulation primarily defines what hospitals who are being asked to accept the patient can say when they uh, claim that they don't have capacity. Uh, it doesn't really deal with as much hospitals who are transferring a patient has to deal with capacity, although Bob says that uh, CMS pretty much uses the same definitions for both, and I don't see anything specifically says, well, this is uh, what what you can do and this is what you can't do. It sounds like there's a fair amount of judgment in this because you can envision, frankly, a hospitalist is just, is just overwhelmed with patients. And um, theoretically, the hospital has the capacity, but in actuality, they don't. So can another hospital take these people? Well, I, I think the bottom line here is a real simple one for the emergency physician. Before he picks up that phone, and has to call another place. And you know, you're always begging when you do that, Rick. I mean, we've all been in this position where you're calling up begging for somebody to take a case and the guy's grumpy on the other end of the line. What you have to be able to say is, by policy, we cannot take another patient. And that means written policy. But what I was trying to get at a couple of seconds ago was, This cannot be the whim of the individual hospitalist that day. The hospital needs to have written guidelines, which have been approved by the board of directors, that says this is dangerous, this is when we close, this is when we can't take new admissions. So it's not a personality. It's not somebody that day. It's really looking at the best interest of the patient down the road. Now, 
Every one of us has been in that position where, where we had to transfer a patient, but you better be able to document why you did it. And I think, I think that's the only danger here is the, as we frequently say, the arbitrary and capricious actions of some doctor versus intelligent written protocol of the hospital. Right. Bob says objective criteria are best. But as always, medicine is dynamic and there needs to be some degree of flexibility. Well, you betcha uh, when they talk about the meaning of reached their limits. Uh, what else is involved in this case? Uh, our, no our listener notes that it appears that based on what he is able to find, if a hospital deviates from what it is usual and customary, it is potentially an EMTALA violation. And Bob agrees. And so we're going to step back and say, we need these policies and procedures in place, even if they're not, you know, black and white objective. Uh, having put up with uh, investigations, and in most states, the investigation is not done from the federal level, but it is done from the state level. The best thing you can have is the fact that you've tracked every time you've closed or you've not been able to take a, a patient and you've somehow got a record which one, which cases they were, why they couldn't do it, and these look legitimate. And you look at them occasionally. You do some review, so you have a, an idea: is this thing functioning in the best interest of the patient? That's the kind of thing an investigator from the state wants to see: that you're following these trends and that you are not abusing uh, your ability to transfer patients. Uh, Bob also notes that the AAEM website has some information regarding this. But again, he notes most of this focuses on the receiving hospital and their capacity to receive patients, not so much the sending hospital. Yeah, this is the town and gown conflict that goes on all the time, where smaller hospitals, non-academic hospitals uh, feel they, they're doing the best for their patient by transferring the academic centers, which tend to be the receiving hospitals in these cases, get all bent out of shape. I have personally been involved with two of these cases where the hospital, the smaller hospital, was turned in not by complaints of the patient, not by anything in the state regulatory agency, but they were turned in by the re receiving hospital that felt they'd been, quote, unquote, dumped on by the community hospital. So this is a conflict between uh, the town, the average Joe hospital, and, and the academic receiving centers. And, and we need to keep in mind the goal here is the best care for that patient at that moment. And I think that we've got to, to the greatest degree possible, keep individual preference out of this. Bob notes that CMS gives more, more wiggle room to transferring hospitals that reasonably claim they can't handle the problem at this time, as long as it was a decision based on medical reasons, not on insurance or any other discriminatory reasons. Let me see. Let me just say that there's a couple of cases I've been involved in where, uh, and I've I've just finished off two of these cases. One of them had to do with a case in the West in a small hospital in a state which will remain nameless where there's a lot of rodeo activity. A, uh, a, a uh, young man is bucked off a, a bull and, you know, those are dangerous beasts, Rick. They really are. I mean, 
I don't think we realize how crazy those guys have to be to do this. Uh, the bull happened to uh, take a bit of that horn and put it into his femoral artery. Uh, not a good thing. The emergency physician received the patient and and because he got a phone call from another hospital, a really small hospital, says, yeah, we'll take it. Well, he hadn't checked ahead. Their, uh, their vascular surgeon was out of town. So instead of that first hospital going, sending him to a hospital that did have the capacity, it came to Hospital B. Hospital B, he's calling around. He hadn't been informed. Now he's got to call the, well, <laughs> actually it's the University of Oregon. And, and uh, he begged for this guy to be taken care of. Now, uh, unfortunately, by the time this patient went from Hospital A to Hospital B to Hospital C, the university hospital, his leg became more ischemic and they had to cut the leg off. As you can imagine, uh, not only did this precipitate a, a standard uh, civil action lawsuit malpractice case, but there was a concomitant Mtala case filed with it. If you're going to be the receiving hospital, know what your capabilities are. Honestly, know whether you can receive it. If you're a sending hospital, you ought to make sure you pick out the right hospital to go to so that your patient doesn't need a third, uh, second transfer. Yeah, secondary transfers, uh, you wouldn't think uh, would be viewed particularly positive in the uh, MTALA setting. Greg, last month we did a, a couple of papers uh, out of the extraordinary, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary EMA database. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're not, we're not going to spend the entire program on self promotion here. But I agree. How about with just you a little that, bit of it? Yeah, a little bit of it. We've had a little bit of it now. But I agree with you that some of these are uh, quite good. This, uh, this this month we have some very good papers. One had to, one had to do which which is great. Uh, let's read the title. Expedited Partner Therapy for Scabies, Legal and Ethical Considerations. This was in the Journal um, of uh, Academic Dermatology. I didn't even know there was such a journal, but uh, they ask a very good question. What about the idea of somebody comes in with scabies and then you say, well, who did you get this from? And they come up with a name and you write them a prescription. What's the liability for that prescription? By the way, did we get the right disease? And I don't think this is a simple question. It is from the scabies standpoint, but what if there's 10 people involved, i.e., um, and I was involved in a case like this where basically uh, we had half the, the cheerleading squad coming in to be reexamined, but we, we didn't know whether there are other issues. For example... I know it's simple to write a name on a script and give somebody whatever the current medication of the day is for scabies. Do they also have gonorrhea? Do they have, do they have some other infectious or contagious disease? Um, who are their friends? Because you treat one person doesn't mean you've treated the universe of the disease. Should public health, the health department be involved in this? I don't think it's a simple question, Rick. Well, that's why this article was written. Uh, he points out that, uh, and these guys who are writing are from uh, Emory University, 
And by the way, it is Journal of the American uh, Academic uh, Medical Society or something like that. The citation is in your abstract, but it's a proof that papers that relate to what we do in emergency medicine can be found in a lot of other journals. And that's why you obviously need to be a subscriber to what? Emergency well, oh, 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 yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Emergency medicine abstracts. We, we give it the next plug, but I, but I think the questions raised are two. Is it a high liability question? And of course they basically conclude that now nah, the liability here is probably small, but that's not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, is this, is this reasonable medical care? Are you missing diseases? Well, you know, they first of all talk about HIPAA. Uh, when you are giving a prescription to your friend, the doctor, the, the uh, ER or urgent care doctor gave you a prescription, and he also gave you a prescription for your spouse or your kids or whatever. That is the same as telling your spouse or your kids that you have this disorder called scabies. So that's a HIPAA uh, potential right then and there because uh, uh, because it is. The other thing is there's no good faith examination of this person, which is generally one of the requirements for prescribing a, 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 a medication. Right, right. That's, that's, that uh, rule is broken about as often as the Los Angeles jaywalking ordinance, I'm afraid. But uh, here's uh, just, just uh, to make everything clear, somebody's going to have to talk to the other family members about what we think is going on. The definition of a true diplomat is a man who can convince his wife to take penicillin for his urinary tract infection. Uh, and I, I think that, I think that at some point in time, uh, some healthcare provider has got to pull these people together and decide what's, what's what and what's going on. You know, one of the things I didn't realize is that this has been addressed by the legislatures of uh, all of the states. They point out in this paper that as of 2013, when this paper was written, expedited partner therapy, which is generally used in the context of treating uh, STDs, uh, used to, I guess it used to be called STDs, now right. they're called STIs. In fact, right. in any case, that's allowed in 33 states. There are 13 states where it uh, is kind of in the gray zone, and it is specifically prohibited in seven states. And you ought to probably know what states they are. Yeah, well, let's list them off. Uh, It is prohibited to do that. Specifically, it is in written law in Arizona, Florida, Kentucky, Michigan, here in my state, Ohio, Oklahoma, and West Virginia. Well, you know, I now, think it. I think that uh, it wasn't Arizona. I think it was Arkansas. Oh, okay, Arkansas. Okay, and uh, but the key here is that the states have all looked at the exact same question and come up with different answers. So you at least ought to be aware of what's allowed in your own state. I guess I'd also cover the basis that even states where it's allowed, it would be advantageous to have as one of the instructions. Um, uh, Here's medication. You should be checked by your own physician at some point to make sure this is uh, resolved. I I honestly think that in something like scabies, you really have to spend some time with a patient telling them about how the sheets are washed, the pillows, 
this kind of clothing, that kind of clothing. Uh, and if everybody doesn't do it at the same time, then all you've done is, is built a time to be reinfected. Uh, also, if there's intermittent people, uh, a consort that you see once a week or once a month, they may miss out on the on the treatment mode. So it is not a simple question, Rick. Well, I think one of the things that they do recommend is that patients be provided with written information about the risks and benefits of treatment to share with their contacts along with information to make an appointment, as you suggested. But I can see a nice little sheet uh, that says, here's how, here's what you've gotten, and here's how to take care of it. We're going to give you some medicines, but in addition, you've got to do these things. You've got to put the, the, this stuff in the dryer, et cetera, et cetera, which basically gives the um, not only an outline to the patient, but it also gives it an outline of what the, the ought to be done to any other person who's being prescribed uh, medications. They've got to do also these other things as well. Also, it would list in there the theoretical benefits and risks associated with treatment, which in this case are pretty nil. All right. Take-home summary. Know what your state does or does not allow. Number two, in states where it's equivocal, err on the side of seeing people before you give them medication. Three, if you're just going to give medication for a large group of folks, they need to, you need to have shared decision-making. Number one, this is for a very specific infection. Number two, we don't know whether there's another infection involved here. And number three, any questions, come on in, come on back, see your doc, but uh, we will take care of the problem. You know, some uh, physicians now are using ivermectin, which is uh, a drug that kills just about anything that is living on you. Uh, and um, here's a pill to treat scabies, which is kind of cool rather than sheep dipping yourself and all of these other kind of toxic things. But then again, right. if you are going to use that, um, I'm not sure, frankly, whether ivermectin uh, is on the uh, approved list for the uh, or the indication for the treatment of this uh, this condition. But if you're going to use it, you know, I would check that out. Greg, we have another paper here. Do you want to start this one off? Uh, oh, yeah. This is. Uh... Let me get let me get down to this one. This is um, engaging law enforcement in overdose reversal initiatives. Now, I everybody's got a new term for everything these days. Uh, overdose reversal initiatives. That means treating their overdose authorization and liability for naloxone administration. This is in the American Journal of Public Health. August uh, 2015, and it's very timely because, Rick, I didn't know whether you were aware of this or not, but at this year's ASEP Council meeting, which takes place this month, hasn't taken place yet, but it's about to, there is Resolution 29, which is sponsored by multiple people, including Jerry Hoffman, uh, uh, Rick Bucata, uh, Larry Bedard, and this particular resolution speaks exactly to this issue. It asks ASEP to, and its supporters and advocates to support training and equipping of all first re responders, i.e. police, fire, EMS, etc., etc., in the use of both nasal spray and injectable naloxone. Now, 
you think, well, is this really that big a, a deal? The answer is, and, and I tend to be a, a minimizer, not a maximizer, but there really is been a, a, an increase in, in deaths from overdoses, 44,000 last year. And as far as causes of death, accidental causes of death, we assume these are accidental, it is now surpassed motor vehicle accidents. That was always the number one cause of death, traumatic cause of death in young people. Last year for the first year, it was drug overdoses. So it, it wants ASAP to educate them. It also advocates uh, uh, trained pharmacists be able to dispense naloxone without a prescription. And finally, it asks that even that school nurses uh, and other people be trained uh, uh, with regard to safe injection sites, needle exchanges, all those sorts of things. <clears throat> When this comes up at the council meeting, I'm going to ask for one other thing that needs to be added to this. For any first responder, second responder, pharmacist, school nurse, if they use the medication, they need to be exempt from liability. It should be used in those situations where someone is passed out, breathing slow, they have the usual findings that go along with an opiate overdose, and if they use it in good faith, they should be exempt from any civil liability. What do you think, I'm, su Rick? I'm surprised that that is not uh, part of this resolution. That seems hey, like a no-brainer. Well, uh, your name is on the resolution uh, as having submitted this. I, I don't know how carefully you read it before they did no, it. No, I, I did what? read it carefully because I'm a supporter generally of the things that Larry Bedard supports. And, you know, Larry Bedard has been kind of like the conscience of the council for the last 10 years. And uh, a lot of people, you know, don't gravitate to, you know, his topics. However, here they are coming to the fore because the top of the problem has become so obvious and they should have been addressed a long time ago. So we're kind of doing a little catch up and Larry has basically been stirring the pot. So I don't particularly read these things necessarily in detail because I support Larry. Larry, why didn't you do this? Well, the bottom line here is I will speak to the issue of liability because as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to go out on a limb and do something, perform an act uh, which is done in good faith to save someone else's life, uh, there should be there should be no liability attached to that. Uh, you know, will there be will there be some strange case of an allergic reaction or something somewhere in the country? Of course, if you give an infinite number of people a drug or near infinite, there will be a problem somewhere. But I don't. I think it is important that we look at all of these. And this isn't the only resolution coming up this year, which has to do with with uh, drug treatments, uh, both in the emergency department and out. And I think that uh, liability cannot attach to these things. So this paper is a review and analysis of the potential legal risks. It is produced by the Network for Public Health Law, Southeast Region in Carlboro, Carl North Carolina. Right. In any case, here's what they have to say. This is a prescription drug. Okay, no argument there. 
And there may be issues regarding its use by police officers in particular, who are often the first people on the scene of these uh, overdoses. And they point out there may be potential liability for the administering of this prescription medication, particularly when there is uh, no policies, procedures, training, uh, medical supervision, et cetera, et cetera, all of the, the kinds of things that you would be intuiting to be required. Because right now, you know, how do you know that a policeman knows where to inject this thing or how to inject this stuff? So there has to be some training, some kind of supervision in, in this process. And wouldn't you agree with that? Dr. Henry? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think that more than that, we're not talking about a six-week course here. We're talking about 10 minutes. And yeah. if they're down, if they see a person down and they got funky friends and they say, well, he shot up, uh, you at least ought to know where to stick a needle of Narcan. Now, my understanding is the drug is relatively benign. Let's say you gave it to somebody who had some other disease entity. Had I don't know, I, I don't think very many twenty hypoglycemia. Yeah, they even if you gave it to somebody with hypoglycemia, it can't do you any harm. In fact, that's the, one of the standard EMS protocols: is everybody who's unconscious gets uh, a little glucose and and a little Narcan and see what happens. I mean, what, how, how can you go wrong with that is the real question. I, I think that, uh, by the way, the, the question here they're looking at is, is this a, a big problem with law enforcement uh, from a litigation standpoint? And I think it's absolutely not. Um, I, I'm sure, and they conclude this basically too, that this is a low-risk probability case. It still ought to be done under protocol. Let me give you the one scenario which is problematic. There is no emergency doc listening to this recording who hasn't had a patient having received Narcan wake up and and uh, want to fight with you or leave or walk out the door and all kinds of things. Is this a real possibility? Yes. And what all these, these other responders need to know is they can be on the floor again in 10 minutes. You, you can't abandon them. You can't give a shot, see them open their eyes, take a breath, and think that they're going to be normal now. Uh, so you don't want to abandon a patient who you have rescued with the drug. At least be there for the next 20 minutes to make sure that they're not slipping down downhill again. Uh, and I, I had dozens of those cases as an emergency doc where we woke them up, made them unhappy. <laughs> now we've ruined their, uh, their $30 high and, and they're upset. So uh, I, I think it's not in giving the drug, which is, it carries the liability. It is the potential for premature abandonment of the patient. Well, I also think there's the issue of potential um, the creation of some physical uh, physical altercations between you and the, the patient if they get rammy or they go wild or, or basically uh, they're not interested in you being observing them and I'm out of here kind of thing and then what right. are you going to do? So I think that that is also uh, something to consider. Some of the 
recommendations for the use of naloxone suggest that it be used kind of like in titratable doses so that you get them breathing again, but that you don't wake up this raging bull kind of thing. And well, that's I, obviously not going to happen in the field. You know, it was one of my standard teachings in comatose patients that I never woke up anybody with Narcan who I actually liked. Uh, I, I never woke up anybody who I intended to have a serious conversation with. And I think that we need to keep that in mind, and uh, law enforcement must also uh, need it. I'm sure the reference in all of these things, including the council resolution, um, to pharmacists being involved is pharmacy giving out this medication to family members who want to keep it around at home. You know, if if you're a 42-year-old mother who's got an 18-year-old kid who's doing drugs, would you want to have this kept at home in case you need it? Uh, first of all, you better take out a loan on the house because the injectable pre-filled syringes are expensive. I mean, unbelievable. But whatever you do, I think the pharmacist has to be involved in some training um, of of these individual people when they give out the medications as to where you inject it, how you do it, and the warning that I gave that it is a temporary fix. It does not take care of large overdoses. And what we're now seeing, there's a, there's a huge run in the Midwest of people who are bringing in elephant tranquilizers, which have like a thousand times the effect per milligram of, of the opioids, the standard opioids. Uh, these people don't know how to dose it yet. They take way too much of the medication. Why? Because we're still getting used to this. And I, th I think that we're living through another phase of opiates. I mean, you and I grew up in the uh, heroin phase of the world. We've gone way beyond that now. And I think it's interesting that deaths from opioids are going up, both prescribed and, and illegal ones. They're not going down. We're, we're not on top of this project yet. Speaking of uh, EpiPen, I don't honestly know. I used to know, but I don't want to make any misstatements. The cost of the uh, naloxone injector. Yeah, uh, I believe that it was very expensive. Though when I say that, I, I'm, I'm talking in the five six hundred neighborhood, but I I can't say that with certainty. I can right. say with certainty that the EpiPen, and I wrote a column in it or in Emergency Physicians Monthly regarding the pricing of drugs uh, again. This ad nauseum. But this was really hit the fan recently when there is this life-saving drug, or at least potentially life-saving drug, in epinephrine, where the price went from $90, and then the uh, company, another company, Mylan, bought it, and now the price is about $600 yeah. for the same drug. Uh, uh, there's been no improvements in the product. There's, there's the, the only improvement in the product has been the price. Well, and Rick, that, that's the point that everyone's made, that this is not a drug where you can talk about these huge expenses we need to recoup from research. Uh, Brad, uh, Walter Bradford Cannon taught us about epinephrine over 100 years ago, and we're giving the exact same drug. I mean, it's not like we've invented a new epinephrine. You know, uh, did you see the Emmys last night by any chance? 
No, I did not. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm blocking the name of the host, but he's the host of the Tonight Show. Come on, do you know who he is? It, it is uh, on? Jimmy, J- Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel. Not, he's really he's quite good. The so the apparently, yeah. apparently, the people in the audience hadn't eaten for a protracted period of time, and a lot of them, I guess, were hungry. So he, Jimmy Kimmel's mother made something like you know 5,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which uh, Jimmy Kimmel then distributed to the people in the audience. But he said, uh, hopefully there won't be any, any uh, peanut allergies here because we can only afford about one EpiPen. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, that's actually geez. that's actually funny, Rick. I mean, it's it's actually a, a good deal here. Another dig for these uh, pharmaceutical companies who just choose to gouge because they can. All right, yeah. Greg, it's uh, time wait, to, to do a let, few Let me just here, uh, clean up one other uh, problem we've got here. We made a comment, and of course, um, you've got to be very careful when you make a comment on this program because there's going to be somebody who's an expert or somebody's thought through the issue. And uh, one, one of our listeners says, um, I agree it's not a great practice to escort people out of your emergency department, uh, have them escorted out by police and security. However, most places do not have social workers who have tons of resources to deal with difficult patients. It's true that sometimes good things happen when the sun comes up, and uh, that means he's been a listener because that was always our motto, wait till dawn, things happen. But uh, pretending that, that, that there will not be some pushing and shoving involved is not correct. No offense, but social work can't solve all of these problems either. And unless you're in a rich suburban neighborhood, they, of, they often don't get involved. Now, you made a comment back to this, um, to this person, Rick and said his name, and I will not mention it. I certainly agree that when um, uh, the wife is coming in, you know, to determine what things are going to happen, it would not be reasonable to wait for hours for her to arrive or family members. And I think this is a comment about the change of shift, the fact that there's a lot of social issues that go on. How long should a physician wait around to make sure the social issues are taken care of. I think you and I can agree that if the fa- if the patient dies and the family's coming in, yeah, we'll wait that extra 15, 20, 30 minutes to take care of it. What if it's going to be three hours? Then you know what? We don't have social work in most of these hospitals. The next doc is going to have to pick up that ball, and it is never an easy thing for them to do. Yeah, Greg, I agree with everything that you've mentioned. Uh, we are going to do some cases, uh, but, 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 but before you do that, I wanted to point out a paper. Uh, it's entitled Difficult, well, the column, this is an article, entitled Difficult Patients More Likely to be Medically Diagnosed. If that is that a surprise, Greg? No, no, no. It, it's <laughs> anyway, not. this is from um, Medscape, and it was written in, in the March... 16, 2016 uh, issue where they referred to a paper published in uh, BMJ Quality and Safety in which they note, now this is not specifically emergency medicine, but I think it would equally apply, that physicians had a 42% greater chance of misdiagnosing a difficult patient when compared with a neutral patient. And I think that this is just another reminder 
of uh, a red flag when, in fact, you're having trouble with the person to step out of the room, take a deep breath, remember that you're uh, there for their benefit. They, they don't probably mean to be antagonistic. However, and, and, and if you work in a big enough department, it may be sometime the opportunity to bring on another physician and take over the care of that patient because once you've gotten into this situation where they don't trust you, uh, there's some interpersonal things going on. Uh, it's nothing good can come of that. I, I wrote a piece for uh, in EP Monthly uh, last month, which talked about the triggers which set you off so that you can't give out reasonable health care. There are cert- each one of us needs to analyze ourselves and look at our own triggers and say, what makes me so damn mad that this patient will not get a fair shake? One of those is as soon as they come in and say, doctor, I've got a very high pain tolerance. Now, as soon as those words come out of anybody's mouth, the physician's going, oh, Jesus, it's one of these. When they come in and say, you know, I have the worst headache of my life about once a week. Now we're mad again. You can't let these phrases control your thoughts. Uh, and, and all of us, if you're honest, there are going to be a list of things which are said to you, which are going to drive you crazy. And, and um, when you've driven, been driven crazy enough, then you've got, you've got choices. Stepping out of the room, as you point out, is a good one. Uh, getting another physician involved in the care is a great idea. I've certainly had a few cases in my career where a patient came in and I, uh, for the second time that day or in the 24 hours where we have, we have switched doctors. We've waited till another one came on and it did pick up things. I, I think that no matter how smart we are, no matter how much we know about, about the, uh, about various technical aspects of medicine, if your head isn't into the game of solving the problem, um, you're not going to be good. You're just not going to be good that day. Greg, I have to tell you, I don't honestly know whether it was the last month. I thought it was the last month issue, which I think is the September issue of EP Monthly, which uh, I think, no, maybe it's maybe it's not. Yeah, I guess it's September. The column that you wrote, I thought, was just extraordinarily lucid and thoughtful and brilliant. Uh, I I thought it was terrific. I thought (laughs) it was terrific. I also have to say, Jim Roberts did a column uh, in uh, EM Monthly that was a pouring out of his soul regarding um, some of the challenges of being an emergency physician and I thought Jim did a fabulous job, and you could really see that it was a lot of it was really very personal, and um, about mistakes he has made and regrets that he has uh, as he's gotten older uh, related to his, his practice and how it related to other things in his life. And Jim, I think you did a terrific job as well. Yep. No, no, I I read that piece. Um, um, I I think. As I'm winding down my column in EP Monthly and uh, those of us who are, you know, moving into our 70s, 
um, I think we are becoming more reflective. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's too it's late. Important. What? It's too late. Yes. I, I understand it's too late, but, but what we're doing is confessing our sins for, for at the moment that we're taken. We've at least got those few sins off the plate. And we're giving advice to people who we know will not listen. Yes, exactly. If, if listened, exactly. if they listened, society would evolve. And but it's not intended to do that. It's not doing that. All right, I want to do a couple of cases, yeah. Rick. All right. Here I've got a case, and uh, this case was uh, in, in a western state, which will remain nameless. Uh, the plaintiff was a 38-year-old teacher and property manager, hardworking uh, person who collapsed at her home after carrying a laundry basket down a flight of stairs to the laundry room. Emergency personnel came and uh, transported the patient to the hospital. The, this woman suspect, uh, the, uh, they suspected that the patient had had a stroke. They did, the patient was given a CT scan. However, the CT scan, quote unquote, missed a clot um, in the M1 branch of the middle cerebral artery. The, def- the defendant physician admitted the patient to the hospital but, and told the admitting doctor that there was no stroke and there is a likely psychiatric stress could be a psychiatric stress response after, after uh, because she had just learned that her grandmother had cancer now i don't know what you're doing or where you're from but we're going to make some comments here number 1 a fresh ct scan is uh, or even an mri can be 6 to 12 hours behind the event you can have a huge stroke with a normal looking ct if the patient looks like a stroke and acts like a stroke and again i'm going to recommend the radical radically you examine the patient they did this patient had a sided anterior lesion now whether you believe in sucking out clots or not. And there's more and more data to say that's not a bad thing. Whether you believe in TPA or not, the patient and their family do deserve at, at least some sort of discussion. Uh, this, is, this is the joint decision-making, which everybody, shared decision-making, which everybody's now talking about. So, they assumed because the CT scan did not show a stroke, they didn't have a stroke. No, the reason you do a CT scan, if you're a believer in TPA, that sort of thing, is to see if there's a fresh bleed, yes or no. Right. But it never tells you whether that fresh uh, stroke is sitting there or not. Even the MRI can be up to 12 hours behind the event. So, as you might imagine, uh, this didn't go over very well. Uh, and, of course, patient gets upstairs with a psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, one, one of the family members d- insisted a neurologist come and consult on the case, and, uh, and the, the correct diagnosis was made. Let me just say that... Um, the the list of people as experts in this case were a veritable who's who 
in emergency medicine stroke. Come and, on, give some uh, names. It here. didn't give go some well. names. Come on, what? I, I'm interested in names. Well, one of the guys who's a close friend of mine, um, Andy Jagoda, uh, uh, from from New York, um, he spoke for the plaintiffs and said, "You know what? This isn't a good thing." And and uh, they should have at least understood the physical exam trumps the radiologic studies, and they should have at least carried on some discussion about the treatment of stroke. None of that happened. Seems reasonable to me. Oh, oh my God. Uh, I, I think in general, we're going to repeat something that we've said before. Let's keep it straight. Every Anytime you're writing down a psychiatric diagnosis, the pen ought to smack you in the top of your head. The lightning bolt. The lightning bolt ought to say, you know what? Most people don't die from psychiatric diagnoses. What is it that they could die from? And I think that uh, I think that I the one the one change I did make in my career was I just didn't put that stuff down. I I I didn't want to admit people with a psychiatric diagnosis on the chart. Well, you know, I think this is a fundamental bit of misinformation that they were suffering with here to think that a CT can make a diagnosis of a stroke. That's not where why we do a CT. We make we do a CT to find blood, as you've said. And um, yes, there may be subtle findings of a, of a stroke on a CT. Maybe a neuroradiologist could pick those up, but maybe not a general radiologist. But this sounds like a fundamental error. So, Greg, what's the outcome here? Oh, th- this is in the millions. And Oregon is not a state which generally gives huge amounts of money. This is not Pennsylvania. This is not Chicago, Illinois. Uh, this isn't Detroit, Michigan, Kings County, New York. This isn't one of the poison counties. But you know what? It didn't go well. And it's, it's, a, it's a basic lack of scientific knowledge here that we're going to do this, mach- uh, put them in this machine, and we'll have the answer. No, frequently you don't have the answer. And, uh, you know, I hate to break this to all our younger colleagues who are listening, but uh, examination is still useful. When the examination trumps the study, uh, examination wins. And (laughs) you just don't do that. Yeah, this is a a, – I can't envision that they would lose this case. This is, again, one of these lost opportunity situations where – as the clock runs, we believe that this drug becomes less and less useful, although it's interesting, the math. According to NINDS, 12% of people who get this stuff get better as a result of it, and 6% get worse. So somehow they got the jury to understand that despite the fact that most people who get TPA get no benefit, 84% get no benefit, that this lady would have been one who of the sick of the 12% who do and therefore, uh, they are culpable. By the way, I, I think that most of what we're talking about these days is 20 and 25-year-old knowledge. You realize the, the information that got put into the NINS trial, Rick, is now 25 years old. It was published 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and they had the five years of the study. So this is old stuff. 
What's much more interesting these days, and a lot of this data is coming from Europe, the Mr. Clean trial and things like that, is going in. No, nobody can do anything posteriorly. But anteriorly, they've been sucking out clots with some very good numbers. And I think that we cannot ignore those numbers. And I'll tell you what, if I had neuroradiologists in my hospital, I think the emergency doc is honor bound to to at least carry on that shared decision making with the family with regard to anterior circulation lesions. Although, Greg, as you may know, the vast majority of hospitals do not have interventional uh, neuro radiologist or other kind of interventional physicians. And so there's this move afoot to have stroke centers go beyond those that can give TPA quickly, but regional centers for the extraction of clots. Uh, so the vast majority of hospitals do not have access to this in a reasonable time frame. No, and but the vast majority of hospitals have the ability to transfer. If, if you're on the East Coast of the United States, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about if you're in the middle of Wyoming, but if you're in the middle of New Jersey, you can get to a hospital where they have uh, a, the ability to suck these things out uh, and do pretty well. So I would, uh, you know, I'm a vasculopath. I am not a, a, a guy who thinks that the NINS data actually says what they claim it says. But I can't ignore the, the in 2014, there were three papers published about sucking out the clots, which all had pretty favorable results. My big complaint about two of those three papers is they, they prematurely terminated the studies uh, because it looks so good. I wish they'd gone ahead and completed the study correctly so we would know more. Because you and I both know that there can be variations uh, over time in the studies. But, uh, you know, if, if I had a, an anterior circulation clot right now, um, I'm seven minutes from a place that could suck that thing out, I'd have them do it. Well, one of the issues I think is uh, this thing called indication creep. Where yes. when you look at the criteria that were used to qualify these patients to have this uh, intervention, they were very strict criteria. And the question comes up, what percentage of stroke patients would meet these criteria that were, in fact, included in the study? Because I believe, frankly, that neuroradiologists or, or whoever are doing these are kind of like stretching and saying, well, this is what they did in the study, but the fact of the matter is, is I think I can help you. Yes, you are outside the criteria of the study, but let's go ahead anyway. Yeah, well, the one thing about this is that the two of those three papers were published in Europe, were, were Dutch, and uh, where the radiologist doesn't get paid more money or less money for doing a procedure. And so I, I tend to look at that situation where they do it on a medical standard basis as, as good. Um, and I don't see a financial incentive driving that. All right. Here's one that should not be a case. Just let's start this out. It's called delayed diagnosis and repair of lacerated tendons. Now, you're going to not like the outcome of this, I promise you, 
But when you think about it, if I was sitting on the jury, I wouldn't like what happened here either. I'm not sure I'd have given as much money as they gave, but let me tell you the story. 22-year-old university senior uh, went to a hospital emergency department, major hospital, for a significant laceration he uh, uh, got to his right ankle while he was at work. The emergency physician cleaned it and sutured it. The doctor noted no obvious tendon involvement, and, and he was sent home. He went the next day to his university health clinic and uh, the, had the ankle checked, and there was still the oozing of some blood, and he was getting some pain, swelling, uh, delayed sensation of the foot, yada, yada. The patient was sent back to the hospitals, uh, to the big hospital's emergency department, and sure enough, uh, they said, yeah, we'll, st- we'll compress the bleeding, but you're going to do fine. If you're not doing better, call and see an orthopedic surgeon. Next, and there was no evidence on that examination that they checked tendon function. They checked strength. They checked any of these things. During the next three weeks, the plaintiff's pain and swelling increased. He saw an orthopedic surgeon and of course, what did the orthopedic surgeon say? If only I'd if been there If only early. I'd seen you earlier. So he opened him up. There are four tendons cut. Four of them. Count them. Four tendons cut. And as, as luck would have it, over the next year, he needed like 10 procedures because it got infected. They had to drain it. They had to go back in. They had to do some tendon replacements. They got infected. So now what he's got is a permanently damaged ankle. And uh, this is in a case, this is in a state. Uh, and th- by the way, this hospital is a famous hospital. It's in um, New Orleans, Louisiana, a famous medical center. And uh, they, they, the jury gave $2.5 million on this mm. stuff. Now, the bottom line is they got cut. They went to the emergency department. Okay, they didn't pick it up. But he went back the next day to a clinic, said this isn't right. They sent him back to the, they agreed it's not right and sent him back to the hospital. Now, now he's touched base with three healthcare providers. I think that you can't, uh, you can't, be touched by three healthcare providers and somebody not get an expert involved. And that's what happened in this case. Basically three strikes and you're out. How come you didn't, <laughs> how come you didn't get somebody else involved in this case? And you know what? Uh, this is probably if I'd sat on that jury, I may have given them money to Rick. Uh, this is, this is not a good case. Got another one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, got a case, I got a case now that is is for grins and for history. 20-some years ago, when Neil and I were doing the uh, two-day risk management course, we always told the story of a patient who there had been a change of shift. A patient had been intubated. The next crowd, the next group of surgeons or uh, anesthesia people come on board. 
they went down inside, down that, uh, that uh, tube and did a laser procedure in the esophagus. Um, and the, the, tra- the tube that they used was not uh, graded for a laser procedure and the tube burned. And now the guy's got flames coming out of his mouth. This is a little more advanced, but this is at a major hospital um, from a major university, the Ohio State University uh, in Columbus, Ohio, where they put down a laser to do some, actually some micro laryngoscopy work, minor, (laughs) listed as minor surgery, they used 100% oxygen, the whole thing burned, and this patient fried their esophagus and, and uh, a couple of weeks later died from this intervention. Now, as you might imagine, everybody's blaming everybody else. The anesthesiologist said, well, I was using 100%. Uh, oxygen on this thing because uh, you're working. I didn't know that you couldn't use that with this particular laser. Now, the ENT people are saying, we booked this as a laser procedure. You shouldn't have been doing this and this and this. And of course, the plaintiff just sits back and is uh, collecting the cash. I mean, this is almost a case where you don't need an expert they gave enough testimony against each other that this thing turned to crap. I, th- I, think, the, uh, I think the issue here is if you're going to do something as a group, multiple people, you better talk to each other because when the anesthesiologists are bitching at the ENT people and vice versa, nothing's going to go well in court. Well, Greg, you know, we have been – it was done in last year's course – Oh, you, what we, what are we talking about? The emergency medical abstracts course. Oh, yes. Acute yes, care yes. series, that's, which is coming up 13 great locations in 2017. One of the topics last year was about hyperoxia. Yeah. And uh, the fact that oxygen is a drug and right. ox- oxygen does have physiologic effects that you have to take into consideration. And the idea here is that once your O2 sat is around, you know, 94, 95, 96%, giving additional oxygen really accomplishes very little, if anything, because 95% of the transfer of oxygen occurs from hemoglobin releasing its oxygen to the tissues. When you give more oxygen, you're dissolving it into the plasma uh, and, and create a a situation where you have more dissolved gas in the plasma, but it's not really participating in oxygenating the patient. So now you put this gas into the plasma. Does it have any physiologic effects? And, and the answer is, yes, it appears to. Uh, it has been shown to increase coronary uh, artery um, vascular resistance, decrease cardiac output, increase peripheral resistance, all bad things if you have a coronary event. So that what they're saying is is that hyperoxia is not necessarily a neutral thing. It can be negative. It was also shown to decrease the, the uh, 
outcomes in people who had strokes, decreased the outcome in people who had return of spontaneous circulation after a cardiac arrest and were given hyperoxia. And, and um, there's one other thing. The bottom line was it's not a great idea to give people more oxygen than they need. Well, it's interesting, Rick, that you and I spoke earlier about uh, fire departments and sheriffs and all that carrying Narcan. It's interesting. They've carried in the sheriff's department here in this area, they've compar- carried a tank of oxygen forever. <laughs> and see, nobody in the world except you and I and a couple other hypochondriac fools believe that oxygen is bad for you. After all, they pull that out, stick it on somebody's face. Uh, they, uh, and I don't know of any jury that's ever found against a, uh, uh, healthcare provider in the field from giving oxygen. Now, you, in fact, you and I know that in, when there's a TV show, they have an IV hanging and they have oxygen, they have nasal prongs on. And everybody just believes this is just proof that you're in the hospital because that's the way we've handled it. When you and I were medical students, can you think of anybody who didn't get oxygen? Well, listen, if a little oxygen is good, a lot has to be better. Right, everybody, right, everybody right, right. Knows, exactly. Knows if a little is good, it's, it's like know, garlic. Yeah. This creates what's called the tethered patient. The tethered patient has oxygen in their nose with tubing running off from that. They have cardiac monitor strips on their arms and legs and, uh, so that, and, and wires coming off of them for that. And they have an unneeded IV in that they don't need for neither drugs nor fluids. But you never know. It can't, it can't hurt to start an IV. So they, they've not, you've now created a patient who cannot get out of bed course they've got a call button which is not connected to the wall and you've created a very frustrated person who wants to go to the bathroom well but the, then if you stick a foley in those people <laughs> that uh, solves that problem see now you've got a try now you've got a uh, a trifecta for <laughs> infection and and other problems so if we stick a foley in then they're not going to bother the nursing staff and and this debate goes on all the time as to whether that Foley is necessary. They'll tell us in the emergency department, stick a Foley in before you send them to the floor. Now, it has nothing to do with, with their bladder. It has to do with nursing convenience up on the floor. And they're so much easier to take care of when you don't have to stick a bedpan under them. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. We've, we've discussed that in our, our courses as well. The, um, the fact that the emergency department is the area of the hospital most associated with inappropriate Foley catheters. But, and that's frankly a relatively straightforward, easy thing to, to fix because most people don't want to insert them, uh, no less uh, if they don't need them. And so actually it, there's a number of papers in our database where people have fixed this problem relatively easy by coming up with a list of the appropriate indications that they kind of people agree on, and when and they monitor it. And if you're doing it for other reasons, they want you to explain why. Yeah, I, I honestly believe that uh, in our practice, in our time in medicine, there are three or four things that have basically disappeared off the map. The NG tube, um, you're pretty much going to have to look a long time to find indications for ng tubes anymore it's very very scant 
IVs in kids for rehydration. I think we do it a tenth as much as we did when I was young. Uh, and and the kids do better. Everybody does better. Uh, blood gases, uh, I think, are gone. Um, I, you know, I, you, can, you can get a venous pH. Everything else you can get off of something else. Uh, all these things are disappearing. Thank and, goodness. Uh, hmm? Thank, Thank goodness. goodness. Exactly. Because they didn't do anybody any good. And they were the harbingers of infection about half the time. If you look at why there's an infection, an infection in a hospitalized patient, just pick one of those three or four. And uh, that was the reason. And I had Ewald tubes and washing out people's stomach and suggested overdoses. That, that's history. Thank goodness as well. Yeah, it's it, it's like it's like activated charcoal. I mean, I know we have a jar of it someplace. I just you just don't see it much anymore. Hey, listen, I got a little thing here. I, I'm trying to see where this came from. This is for the urgent care doctors or the primary care doctors. Uh, this is York, Pennsylvania. A doctor pays three hundred fifty thousand dollars in settlement over opioid prescriptions to facilitate the care of his patients. He uh, signed nearly 150 blank oxycodone prescriptions for distribution by his uh, uh, office manager and her husband. That, that wasn't really the intent. The intent was to be, give them to patients, but that didn't happen. So this right. doctor is going to uh, be paying this over the next uh, five years to settle this. I'm, uh, I'm surprised, frankly, he got off that easy. Um, that's uh, another one that not that that's going to happen in the ER, but I can see that happening in urgent cares, perhaps. Right. Are we uh, ready for wine of the month, Rick? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we're into this uh, about seventy minutes or thereabouts. So, you give us a you know, give us a nice uh, wine of the month here. Uh, <clears throat> all right, we're we're going back to. Uh, my favorite state for wine, actually, it really is, and that's California. Uh, and we're going to the uh, – and remember, we, we grow the stuff here in Michigan too, but nobody really in the country has the, the volume and the quality and the winning of awards that the uh, state of uh, California does. But we're going, we're going to a, a county above Napa. We're going to Sonoma. And it has been my feeling, look, <laughs> there's a line between the two on a map. The quality of the stuff coming out of Sonoma, the quality of the grapes, everything is everybody good. Every bit is good. Uh, uh, there's a winery called Matanzas, M-A-T-A-N-Z-O-S, Matanzas Creek. And quite frankly, uh, this particular winery, they're 2012 Merlots, and they've got a Merlot Jackson Park, which is as tasty as I've ever had. It's got a 91 rating. That's as good as almost anything that's floating around in the, uh, in the, other, in the other counties in California. And they're doing that for about 21 bucks a bottle. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the expensive stuff, the Opus ones and all that sort of stuff, it's gone real crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'm refusing to spend that kind of money on why, unless, of course, you're pieing at dinner. 
No, that's not going to happen. Think, I, I think you did buy the other night uh, when we had dinner, and I did order an expensive wine. But I didn't order any of these crazy – I didn't have a Louis Trez, did I? No, I did not. No Louis Trez. We, we and we drank decent wine. That was at that uh, place at, at the Paris in uh, in um, Las Vegas. Very good. Now I'm going to give you the the real secret, the real t- treat coming out of Sonoma County, and that's White Oak Vineyards and Winery. They do both. They do a spectacular Zinfandel. Um, again for half of what you'd pay out of out of Napa Valley and and they they have a Chardonnay right now a Chardonnay 2013 Russian River uh at uh, at uh, 24 bucks a bottle is uh, it's yeah it's a little more expensive but I think it is absolutely delicious so this is the White Oak Vineyards and Winery Sonoma County, California, the 2013 vineyard, uh, vintages. Um, I'd stock up on those. They're worth it. Okay. Hey, listen, Greg, uh, many people will be likely getting this before you speak at the scientific assembly. And yes. it's my understanding that you're giving a number of medical legally oriented talks. Can you off the top of your head? Now I haven't, haven't prepped you for this. Give me the, uh, the topics that you're going to be talking about so that maybe our listeners can go out and take a listen. Happy to. I am conducting this year. uh, ASAP is doing some experimental workshops. You know, most of what we do there are the big lecture halls, that sort of thing. They actually have a a workshop, which I'm repeating. Uh, So there'll be, there'll be two of these. And it basically has to do with, what do you say to the lawyers? You've now been sued. So now what? What do you do? How do you react? Who do you talk to? And we're going to do some interplay. I'm going to bring some people up. I'm going to cross-examine them. And, and I'm going to let them tell their stories. Because I don't think there's anybody who's ever received a summons and complaint who, who doesn't remember that event. It is not a happy moment in your life. So it's going to be, how do you handle the process of lawsuit and what you do? There'll be another one uh, I'm giving, which is on what do you say to attorneys? And I'm going to give a, a talk basically where I review the 15 or 20 dumbest things I've ever heard a physician say or do either in trial or in deposition testimony. I'm going to talk about how you prepare for deposition, who should beat you up, ask you the tough questions, what are the tough questions, and you should have thought through these things before the deposition or the trial testimony starts because lawyers do this for a living. You need to understand how they think, how they word things, and what you're going to say back. Um, and my last talk is going to be on, on resi- the resiliency of your career. How do, you, how do you actually practice, leave the residency at age 30, and have 40 years of a career? What are the things that make it worthwhile? How do you protect your heart, your soul, your family, 
your body from what is should be considered a marathon, not a sprint. Well, Greg, you can read them. Jim Roberts' column from the uh, podium is that kind of what he was talking about in his most recent uh, article in Emergency Medicine Monthly. Hey, listen, yes. Greg, I got to be the um, I've got a bit of a naysayer to tell you the truth. The two topics that you talk you're giving in a workshop. What the mm-hmm. hell is the difference? A workshop. You could give that and talk in front of a thousand people, and they would get a thousand people would get benefit rather than this, you know, uh, cozy little. We're going to do it in a workshop, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, come Rick, on, you you know what I know. That's all bullshit, <laughs> Rick. I it, I am not charged with raining on people's parades. And somebody said, "Wouldn't this be great in an intimate setting where no, it wouldn't people be to great. talk that I." I'm just passing on the news here from the people who sent me the letter who said people really want this at a higher level intensity uh, and we can get them to to relate more of their stories if it's a smaller, more intimate group. And we're going to limit this to, therefore, 25 of the most screwed up doctors in emergency medicine. Yes. I, <laughs> no, no, no. It's 50. Each workshop can accommodate 50 people. Um, I'm also doing a dine around in Las Vegas where where uh, I have dinner with, I think, 12 people. But that's already subscribed. Everybody's signed up for that. Okay, Greg, congratulations on your uh, award. You're, I'm, I can see you on Skype, and I see that there's no place left on your uh, wall for any more plaques. But you but haven't seen the ceiling. And somewhere, <laughs> uh, uh, somewhere next to the fluorescent fixtures, I've got a spot for this, and it's going to go there right next to our honorary doctorates we got from the Arizona Health Science School. Good luck, Greg. Thanks very much. Talk with you next month. Bye. Oh, listen, I'll see you at ASAP. Please come by our booth. Oh, I'm already planning on it. I will oh. be there to uh, shake hands, and hopefully uh, our, a lot of our Risk Management Monthly listeners will stop by, and maybe we can even do some on-site interviews with people. Actually, we will have the capability to do some recording. We're looking forward to that. Yeah, you and I have have done stuff on the streets of New Orleans and in various places. Uh, I th- I think we're going to get some really good interviews there in Las Vegas. Take care, Greg. Bye bye.